Hey everybody, I am so proud to introduce this fantastic episode number six of the Cribsiders. While it is a pediatric medicine podcast, on this episode, they delve all into the diagnosis and management of type 1 diabetes with a fantastic guest. Whether you're a pediatrician or an internist, this episode is going to be very relevant to your practice. But before we get on to the show, I just wanted to give a really quick shout out. If you are interested in academic medicine or just want to master a clinical skill, consider a one-year fellowship in clinical ultrasound at the University of Pennsylvania. They have graduated eight non-emergency medicine POCUS fellows, and you could be the next one. Check out penultrasound.org. That's P-E-N-N ultrasound.org or email nathaniel.reisinger at penmedicine.upenn.edu. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders, everyone. Uh, we are joined tonight by a great cast, our outstanding guest, Dr. Hussein Abdul Latif, and our phenomenal assistant producer, Shannon Snellgrove. Before we talk about what we're talking about today, Chris, can you tell us what the show is about? We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And today we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Hussein Abdul Latif, more commonly referred to as Dr. Latif, or throughout this interview, Hussein. He was wonderful. He is a pediatric endocrinologist and professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Alabama School of Medicine in Birmingham, Alabama. He is a dedicated clinician educator at UAB by serving as co-director for the Pediatrics Clerkship, through which he is the recipient of numerous teaching awards. Dr. Latif teaches us how to appropriately diagnose and work up new onset diabetes, as well as how substantial diabetes education can really be a mainstay of treatment. So without further ado, let's get to it. This Oh, this will be a sweet episode. There it is. <laughs> so Hussein, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you. And let's just start with a couple questions. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, describing yourself in a one-liner like we often do with the patient? Oh, God. Um, I'm Hussein Abdul Latif. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist in Birmingham, Alabama, with University of Alabama at Birmingham. I came to medicine because my father wanted me to. I wanted to be a historian or archaeologist, and I still am interested in that. So I'm a humanist at heart. A little crazy. I still think that I'm young when I'm not. What is your favorite failure, and how did you yeah. learn from it? So, you know, I, I grew up outside the United States. And so in the 80s, I was, in order to come to the United States and train in pediatrics, I had to pass the exams that were equivalent to step one exam. And my confession is that I actually failed that equivalent to step one, maybe four or five times before I passed it. So it's my favorite failure because I really lost hope of ever coming to this to this country. And then eventually I passed it. So 
and it humbles me when I am advising students who are challenged with step one scores or are challenged with step one passing and stuff like that, because I've been there and, and I turned out okay. <laughs> you certainly did. Absolutely. I love stories like that. I think everyone has a very humbling uh, uh, story of how they got to where they are. And it's always very like reassuring, especially as a student or trainee, when you're having struggles or have little dips in your career to see people yeah. that have become so wildly successful and have overcome those, those little blips. Yeah. So I'll kind of along those lines, one of the questions I always like to ask is about advice. Can you share some advice that you received either as a teacher or as a learner that you feel is nice to share? Yeah. One of my teachers in medical school, he always was saying that students actually have more knowledge than their teachers but students do not know how to put that knowledge together. And, and that, that was something that always stuck with me as a student, is that like maybe I need to see how things fit together rather than, uh, rather than just know it and know it and know it. And it, it helped me as a teacher to advise my students not to be afraid to make mistakes, to say what they think, as long as they can defend it and be reasonable about it, then uh, that would be my advice as a teacher, my advice as a teacher to students to not be afraid to speak up. I love that. Excellent. Excellent. So, Justin, do you want to do some picks of the week? We haven't, I don't know, we've done picks we of the week. We haven't done I think if we do them, we should do them quick. What do you, you got anything good? You got, uh, what, are you, what are you reading, Chris? What are you watching? What are you. Uh... You got any big uh, tips for the fans? <laughs> well, let me let me think for a second because I only only brought it up without even coming up with one. Do you, do you happen to have one? Yeah, sure. I, I got one we can share quickly and then we'll uh, jump on. So I wanted to say this one for Paul because I think he would love it on the, the curbsiders, but we'll share with him. But there's a Netflix special, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which is a nice, I think, pediatric um, thing. It's John Mulaney, a comedian with a handful of uh, child actors that is a very confusing, very kind of avant-garde musical sketch show that is, as he described, <laughs> kid programming by adults for adults. It has David Burns from the Talking Heads doing a musical with a nine-year-old. It, it's weird, but did you worth- see the SNL episode he was on? No. Oh, it was good. Yeah, David Burns and I think John Mulaney was actually on. I think yeah, they're I think they're buddies. Weirdly, I. So that's my pick of the week then. How's that? People go back and find that SNL episode. I'll have to check it out. It's worth watching. Be prepared. It is unique. It is art. It is art. All right. So let's let's jump right in. What a great segue talking about the Sack Lunch Bunch to talk about the Sack Lunch Bunch at Cashlet's Pediatric Primary Care Clinic. So Hussein, if you'll uh, walk us through, we have a patient for you. Uh, It's a six-year-old boy. He presents to the clinic. Mom reports he's been pretty tired for several days. She's also concerned that she's noticed that he's had some bedwetting in the past month, which is totally new for him. He's lost about six pounds since his last clinic visit three months ago, and he appears thin, but otherwise has a pretty unremarkable exam and has normal vital signs. You are a little concerned about diabetes given the weight loss, given the bedwetting, and given the fatigue, and sure enough, a random glucose is 277, and a point of care A1C is 10.5%. So, can you walk us through, can we say for sure this patient has diabetes and what is the diagnostic criteria for diabetes in a yeah. child? So, I mean, and those are things that change and have changed uh, for a while. 
Uh, one of the diagnostic criteria for diabetes is to have a hemoglobin A1C above 6.5%. And so, so by having a hemoglobin A1C of 10 point something, uh, that definitely falls into the diabetes. In the past, we used to say hemoglobin A1C cannot be used as a criterion for diagnosis of type uh, 1 or type 2 diabetes, probably mainly because if you have a low hemoglobin A1C, that does not exclude the possibility of diabetes, but not a high one. Uh, and so now 6.5 and above would be. The other, the other areas that we use are a fasting blood sugar above 126 or a random blood sugar above 200 milligram per deciliter. This would fall under a random blood sugar of above 200 milligram per deciliter. Now, if we want to use that criterion, we want to repeat it. You don't want to use one number, uh, and especially if it's a point of care glucose, you may want to have like a two numbers or three to make sure that this was not a lab error or a machine error of some sort. Now, is there a specific spacing in which you need to repeat that? Can you repeat that within, like, you, know, you get your first lab, you're like, oh, I want to repeat it, and you repeat your second lab, or are you supposed to space it? Uh, I, I would say not necessarily, because uh, like a number like this, if it's really persistent and present, you would do it. If you do want to space it, I would space it a half hour or an hour or something like that. But then you'd worry that maybe it did actually go high to the 200s and then went down. If it actually did go that number, then it's diabetes still. And, that, and so I always wonder, you know, if I were to eat a ton of cake, if I just ate a whole apple pie to myself or was drinking, you know, sugary drinks, I do not have diabetes. I will not be able to get my random glucose above 200. Is that the idea for the diagnostic? It, it should not go above 200. And so when we go to standardized testing, for example, we do the two-hour postprandial or two-hour post-glucose. And what we usually look at if the blood sugar is above 200, then it's a diabetes at the two-hour time. And if the blood sugar is between 150 to 200, then that would be pre-diabetes, glucose intolerance of under that category. Excellent. And so for this patient who's come in with fatigue, weight loss, and bedwetting, is that the common presentation for type 1 diabetes? How do we often find these children? Are they yeah. presenting in DKA or what's the common presentation for new so, type 1 diabetes? Uh, really very good question. It, it can be different kinds of presentations. And, and this is for a regular kid, a kid who's above two or three years old. It would be mostly fatigue, polyuria, polydipsia, hunger, eating, and, and generally looking skinny or having lost weight uh, over a certain period of time. They do, they can present with DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, which can present with vomiting, nausea, abdominal pain, and uh, maybe in addition, it changes in the level of consciousness, being a little bit tired and fatigued, and also talking a little different. There are some situations where the family is just very vigilant, either because they do have other members of the family that have diabetes. So they may be checking blood sugars a little bit too often or dipping urine because they are worried that their kid can develop diabetes. Our aim as a community of pediatricians is to try to not catch anyone presenting with diabetic ketoacidosis, because that is a dangerous thing to have, and to educate the public and the pediatricians to pay attention to other symptoms of diabetes. So kids will come not coming to the ICU or, or situations where they need extra help. 
Now, so if I was this boy's parent and, you know, I'm bringing him to either, you know, the office and we've gotten a couple of blood sugars or maybe they're even sicker and they show up in the emergency department and we get these labs, you know, a lot of parents, you know, there's a lot of confusion between, you know, what's type one diabetes, type two diabetes, especially for the older adults. They, they, they know that, you know, uncle, what's his face has, you know, diabetes. Is that the same thing? How do you explain it to a parent? Yeah, before I explain anything to the families, I start with two very important messages that I need to let them know when someone is diagnosed with diabetes. And the first one, oftentimes families come with a sense of guilt and or blame of some sort. I start with saying it's not anybody's fault. It was something that was happening, that's happened, and they couldn't have done anything to prevent it. And my other point that I tell them is they may have had or they may have seen pictures of people who had diabetes who had a very difficult outcome and lots of side effects of it. And and I assure them that the future is much brighter for so many different reasons. So that's kind of the first statement I would open my mouth with. And then, then we talk about the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Although, generally speaking, the most important question to me uh, when a child comes is not necessarily, are they having type 1 or type 2 diabetes? The most important question, is this a kid that needs insulin or not need insulin? No matter whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So I will tell them, you know, this blood sugar and this hemoglobin A1c that we're having, we have to use insulin um, in this child at this moment. And then we will talk a little bit more about type 1 versus type 2 diabetes and the difference between them. And then we proceed into type 1 diabetes. You don't have insulin. Insulin is the key that gets the glucose inside the cells. And, and so if you do not have the key, the glucose stays outside the door, and then they will flood the gates, and it will flood in the urine and you know all that kind of stuff. You probably heard that story before. Or many people have heard that that's kind of the traditional way of explaining diabetes to parents. Type 2 diabetes is a little harder to explain because it's not an issue of a lack of insulin, but it's a relative lack of insulin for the need uh, that the body has. So, so in order to develop type 2 diabetes, your body is requiring more insulin, um, but your body is unable to produce the extra amount of insulin and therefore the glucose is not getting inside the door and we're flooding the system again. Sometimes I worry when the families are asking about that issue is that because they really want to avoid an injection, which is insulin, and they they prefer to have type 2 diabetes over type 1 diabetes, I try to explain to them that type 2 diabetes is not necessarily better or worse than type 1 diabetes. And, and in some ways, it may be much worse. In some ways, it's it's better. But taking insulin is not such a big deal. Although at the beginning, having to give your child an injection um, is associated with feeling of guilt and sorrow and uh, regret of some kind. Yeah, that's 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 great. I guess my my, my follow up question would be: usually, when I'm talking to a parent about newly diagnosed diabetes, the another question they often has like, "Well, so my aunt or I or my grandfather they they have diabetes, and they may not obviously may not know the differences between the type." They often will ask, "Well, now are, are all my kids predisposed to diabetes because of this family history of diabetes? Is it the same?" Obviously, certainly the family history part is, is stronger if you do have type 
2 diabetes than if you do have type 1 diabetes, but certainly there is a very strong genetic component to type 1 diabetes. So our traditional answer to that kind of question is that the risk to having type 1 diabetes is 1 in 500 in the general population in the United States. But if you do have a family member, a close family member with type 1 diabetes, then the risk becomes 1 to 50. So it becomes like 10 times more. Now, if it is a situation where you have identical twins, one brother or sister who is an identical twin, what's the risk for the other sibling? Then it's about 50%. So it's a much higher, it's not 100%, interestingly, but it's 50%, mm. which is high enough. I love the lock and key analogy. I've never heard that with insulin being the key to open the door to the cells for glucose. And I like that imagery a lot. I'm going to use it now. Yeah, we, I learned sort of a, a variation of this where it's where like glucose is like gas in the car and using yeah. the key to turn on the car. You can't use the gas in the car unless you have the key to turn on the car. So it's very something very similar. Yeah. yeah. Insulin's definitely the key though. And so let's say, let's say with this patient, we, we have the patient in front of us in clinic. And as a primary care doctor, I do a great job of explaining to the parent that the insulin is the key and we're going to get them set up with an endocrinologist. But in the meantime, are there other things that I should be doing as part of the initial workup for a new diagnosis of diabetes? I feel like I've often checked for thyroid disease, celiac, and should I be ordering the, the common type 1 diabetes antibody tests? And if so, which ones? Because there seems to be a handful, and I'd love some guidance on, on <laughs> what I'm looking for, what's the best, and, and if this is truly necessary. Well, um, that, that's really interesting. I mean, really very, very good question. And like as a primary care physician, it may depend on where you are located. Like are you a primary care physician that's in a, a good distance away from a big city or a big center that may cater to someone who has diabetes, where you will have to depend on your own care for your patients and therefore become much more autonomous in caring for diabetes. So what we order, and and I never discourage a primary care physician from ordering them uh, themselves, certainly, because I, I like to empower my primary care physicians to, to take care of their patients as much as they can. So the antibodies that we order are glutamic acid decarboxylase 65 antibody. That's, that's always ordered. It's some form of islet cell antibodies, and it could be an ICA-512 or an IA-2 antibody, anti-insulin antibody. And the last one, the third one, that we are starting to order more of is uh, anti-zinc transporter 8 antibody. Why do we order three antibodies? The reason for this is that the more antibodies you order, the more the likelihood that you'll have them positive in someone with type 1 diabetes. So, so if we do order those, those antibodies, then we'll catch 90% of the people with type 1 diabetes. There is a 10% who have what we call type 1 diabetes, but they are negative in antibodies. So the negative antibodies does not exclude the diagnosis, but it makes it interesting as in, do I need to keep in my mind that this could be a new form or another form of disease that acts like type 1, but it may not necessarily be a type 1. And as far as the different antibodies, are there any different phenotypes if someone is anti-GAD65 versus anti-islet cell, or if they're 
if they're pan positive, is that like, oh boy, they're going to have a lot of trouble with their diabetes or is this just a catch-all? Probably more like a catch-all. Now, there are some studies that are showing that the zinc transporter 8, if it's positive, then you lose um, your reserve of islet cells about 20% much faster. Wow. Yeah. Now, there was a traditional picture that if someone is a little bit skinny, then it's type 1. But if you're a little bit full, um, big boned, we call in the South, <laughs> then, then maybe you have type 2 diabetes. That's not necessarily true. So, so sometimes we get someone who's full and they have type 1. So, so now kids that look like type 2, we check antibodies on. And people that look not 100% clear, we look at a C-peptide level just to see if it's lowish, highish, to give us an idea eventually in the future of how to navigate this kid. Can you explain a little bit more about the C-peptide? So C-peptide is a, a cutoff part of protein. That is, when we produce insulin, we have the pro-insulin molecule. And the pro-insulin molecule is a bigger molecule. And before we secrete it, we cut off part of that molecule. One of them is called the C-peptide, and the other one is the insulin, which is the active component. The C-peptide is a marker for our innate production of insulin that we have in our system. So if you have it positive, that means your body is producing insulin, versus if you have insulin positive in the body, but no C-peptide, this could be because you, you took it. You took it as injection or some through other sources. This is great. This is really, really helpful. I've seen in the initial workup, in addition to these antibodies, is screening for um, concurrent autoimmune disease like celiac and thyroid. Are there other things we should be looking for in these patients that have presumed type 1 diabetes? That's a really very good question. That is what we actually do when we diagnose them. We screen for thyroid and celiac disease. The one thing that I fall into error with is if they do have more than one autoimmune condition, like, you know, diabetes and thyroid or diabetes and celiac or diabetes and celiac and thyroid, then I do need to not miss uh, a possibility of Addison's disease, especially Addison's disease, because that is a that's a condition that hides. And unless you think of it, you will miss it until they really come very sick and maybe come into emergency rooms. So, so that's one autoimmune condition that I really don't want to miss. The other is that they are at risk for rheumatoid arthritis. They're at risk for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, not celiac. So, so if they are coming with gastrointestinal symptoms, and they are celiac negative, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have other issues with their GI symptoms. And therefore, I need to keep that in mind. I had a patient once that did have thyroid disease, diabetes, and Addison's. And that's a syndrome. Is that correct? Like an autoimmune polyglandular syndrome? Is that, yes. the, yeah. is that the correct? I mean, yeah. yeah. Now, to piggyback on some the, what, what you sort of described and other things you're screening for, now, there, there can be atypical presentations for, for those who present with diabetes, as well as maybe even presenting with those other, syndrome, those other diseases first and then diabetes afterwards. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, you, you can start with thyroid disease and then you end up with diabetes, or you can have Addison's disease and then you will have diabetes. So it certainly doesn't have to come diabetes first and then the others. Now, there's 
when when I hear like atypical presentations of diabetes, lots of things come to my mind. One of them that is very, very important to keep in mind is that someone who's younger than one year of age, when they present with diabetes, they can present as a picture of sepsis. This is one tricky condition because they come to the emergency room, for example, and they look very sick and they look very dehydrated. Diabetes is not the first thing that comes to people's minds, and but it could be a diabetic ketoacidosis. And so, so the emergency room doctor needs to be very vigilant and to pay attention to the possibility of diabetes. Yeah, sometimes those kinds of kids, when they come, they have a little bit high blood sugar, and it will be dismissed oftentimes, well, this is part of stress, and stress can raise your blood sugar, and so, but keep in mind that that can be diabetes. So that's one one plug I, I don't want people to miss. Now, um, diabetes is not only type 1 and type 2, so you do have... Uh, what we call monogenic forms of diabetes, which can present either at birth, and that's what we call neonatal diabetes. If you do have a kid presenting with diabetes um, before the age of six months, then we do need to check their genetic background to look for the different genes that are associated with, with diabetes. It certainly could be still type 1 diabetes. It can present that young. But then if it is presenting that young, then they do have a very strong autoimmune issue. And there are some monogenic autoimmune disease situations that, that we, we may need to pay attention to. Uh, so that's one. And the other, the other thing to think about is that if someone had uh, pancreatitis, we do have a, a good number of kids with uh, type 1, well, insulin-dependent diabetes as a product of pancreatitis that happened because of hemolytic uremic syndrome. They, or it can come because of a storage disease like hemochromatosis or uh, cystinosis or those kinds of things. There are people who have what we call MODI, or the original name uh, is maturity onset diabetes of the youth. Uh, and this is kind of a monogenic inherited diabetes, usually much milder, doesn't present with diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, I do remember we had a medical student one time who came to us and said that people told me I have diabetes when actually what she had was MODI, uh, a very mild form of diabetes because she looked very healthy. So how would you differentiate MODI versus the other types of diabetes? Yeah, the, they generally would have a, the, MODI would be like a monogenic diabetes, so it would have a much stronger uh, family connection than type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So they will have that kind of family connection, and they usually will have a milder form of diabetes, or they will come to to you and they look very healthy, very very lean, you know, there's nothing about them that says, yeah, you have type 2 diabetes. They say, well, I have type 2 diabetes. Well, God, you don't smell type 2 diabetes. So, so we, the more you think about it, the more you diagnose it. So the more in our practice, we're testing more and more for it, and we're discovering more and more people with, in between quotation marks, have type 2 diabetes that actually have the MODI. So the patients with MODI, I presume, are antibody negative. Correct. So you would do the antibodies. And are they insulin dependent or often not because it's mild? Uh, yeah, often not. Uh, very few of them are, are insulin dependent. So they are antibody negative. They're producing insulin. And they, they don't have the phenotype that you would expect for a young person to have Got diabetes. Got it. What's our typical age group for 
presenting with type one diabetes. It can be as young as uh, a baby, which is not something I've seen, but I've, how old, when, when are we out of the woods of a type one diabetes diagnosis? Yeah. So there's no age for type one or type two diabetes. Um, we've seen type two diabetes in people younger than 10 years of age. And, and people can have type one diabetes from birth to old age. And that's a very important message maybe for an internist that may be listening to, to this or, or, a, or, or a medpeds person is that I personally diagnosed fathers of children that came to us with type 1 diabetes, diagnosed their fathers as having type 1 diabetes when they were told that they have type 2 diabetes, that the kid came presenting with their newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes. And then I look at the father and he said, well, I have type 2 diabetes. And I look, no, <laughs> you don't. Let's check your antibodies, and and certainly their antibodies come back uh, positive, and 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 they were type one, but misdiagnosed as type two diabetes. When type one diabetes occurs in older people, like in a maybe young adults to middle age to older age, it, it's much slower progressing to to becoming insulin uh, dependent than than the type one that occurs in a child, and so so that makes it easier for people to make a mistake of diagnosing them as type two diabetes because they are not yet becoming very insulin dependent, but. But it's also dangerous because they become ketotic eventually if you don't catch them in time. So back in our clinic, let's say we've, we've done an appropriate referral and now the patient is in your office. We've talked a lot about the diagnosis of a patient with type 1 diabetes. So now let's talk treatment. When you are explaining to a patient or, or a parent about how we are treating diabetes, how do you approach that discussion and how do you choose the treatment regimen? What are you using? What's the treatment goals? Can you give us a little bit more details about the treatment plan? Yeah. So we're talking type 1 diabetes or? Type 1 diabetes specifically. So for type 1 diabetes, the treatment plan is what we call basal bolus regimen. And so what that means is that they have to receive two kinds of insulin. One insulin that is maintaining a level of insulin in your system for 24 hours somehow. And the other system is to give a bolus at the time of eating or at a time when you have a high blood sugar level. So that's the basal bolus. And this covers injections and it covers an insulin pump regimen. In general, uh, there are some places in the country that may start a, a kid with type 1 diabetes on an insulin pump right away, but that's not many. Most places will start them on an injection process and, and for very good reasons. One of them is that if you're on an insulin pump, it can fail. And therefore, you really need to know how to give injections and how to manage injections in case of failure of your pump. So we have to give them the two kinds of insulin. We say the basal insulin would be this long-acting, glargine versus detamir versus uh, treceba, diglut something. So those are ones that were given like once or twice a day, it could be. And then you'll have to give them the bolus. And then we'll, we'll go about teaching them about the bolus, meaning it has to be associated with meals or snacks. And we'll teach the families how to count the carbohydrates and come up with a formula of correcting the insulin dose according to the grams of carbohydrates that they're eating, and also correcting the insulin dose by their blood sugar level. 
you know, and what they want to come down to. So this is the main area of our education is teaching them the different types of insulin, teach them how to count the carbohydrates, teaching them the formulas that they are going to use, in addition to teaching them how to give injections and how to check for low blood sugars and high blood sugars and, and manage them accordingly. Now, do you ever run into, you know, I, I've definitely, we've all had our fair share of patients and parents or families who are just incapable of doing the complexities that are involved with carb counting and then even doing the simple calculations. Um, what, how, how would you approach some of those families? Yeah, and we adjust it according to the needs of the families. And and I think what, what we found out is that oftentimes families are under extreme stress and extreme shock that at the time having the calculations is not the, the, the ideal thing and maybe they will be ready for it later you know a month or two later or something like that and we've had that kind of success if we are to do it this way then we go to a, a set dose of insulin but as you do a set dose of insulin then you'll have to teach them with the diet that they have to eat a particular amount of of food so it's so you become a little more rigid with the food less flexible but you also help them with being on the set dose of insulin and then you also give them what we call a sliding scale where you give so and so extra units for blood sugar between this number and this number and then adjust it accordingly so that way you're taking the math out of there uh, and then the, but i like to think that this is more of a temporary thing and that in the future they will be able to have the calculations and 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 will move farther and and the vast majority of people that we started with this regimen end up eventually doing calculations beautifully i'm really excited that you brought up diet because this is something i have a lot of questions about when you have a new type 1 diabetes patient or patient with type 1 diabetes, how do you counsel the dietary modifications? And do they need to have dietary modifications? Is there any reason someone can't eat four donuts and then give the appropriate insulin based on the carbohydrates? Ooh, <laughs> very good question. I mean, and you may get me in trouble with some nutritionist sometimes with my answer. So... In general, the, the only diet modification that I advise is that they should avoid sugar drinks. So right. uh, other than that, I, I do not advise them to change anything of their patterns of the diet. Um, and I am not exactly right in that, uh, that there are some, some other nuances of diet but I don't want them to be overwhelmed with nuances of diet right away. So, so basically to them, I would say your only adjustment is that you will have to avoid the sugar drinks. And your other adjustment is that you'll have to learn how to count the carbohydrates in the food that you're eating. And if you're counting the carbohydrates and you're able to do the calculation of the insulin to carb ratio, then you're great. You do it, you go eat cake, you do whatever you want to do. You can even eat those four donuts. But if I say that in front of my nutritionist, she will kill me. <laughs> I, think that, I think that that's super helpful. And I think it comes up a lot on the inpatient side when we admit a patient um, that happens to have diabetes, whether to give them a carbohydrate-restricted diet when we're very closely monitoring their blood sugar and sliding scale insulin. For these patients, is it fine to order a regular diet and just make sure to... The, that, that's what we usually do, and, and we order it. Now, um, talking about the low-carb diet, 
And this is, there was a study that came up maybe two years ago, and there was a very interesting article that came in the New York Times written about that article, where people between the age of 13 and 39 were put on a low-carb diet, meaning they're eating about maybe 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, and they have type 1 diabetes. And they reported that they have Uh, very good control, meaning they don't have spikes of blood sugars that go high and drops that go low. And the reason for this is that you're not challenging them as much with the bolus, and you're basically having to keep up with the basal insulin uh, as well as you can be. Uh, As pediatricians, we... I worry about ordering low carb diet that or way too low because then you start worrying about getting into ketosis not related to lack of insulin and then that becomes confusing and whether it will affect growth. That study was not done on a very young it was done on people who are 13 and and reported that there was not an effect on their growth. But if a family comes to me and families are very well educated um, that are dealing with type 1 diabetes, they will come and say, well, I'm interested in a low carb diet. And I would tell them, then you may want to limit it, but not limited to like 30 to 50 grams, maybe um, limited to 50 to 100 grams or something like that, a little bit adjustment to that diet. Uh, this is more like diabetes 102 rather than, <laughs> or 103, or, you know, God sure. knows what. Most families that try it eventually don't stick with it because it's really difficult to stick with regimen, although people do stick with it, you know, who have very strong will. We are sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. Now, you, you sort of threw out some some numbers in terms of um, what, what you consider so low carb. Can, for especially some of our learners who are listening, maybe some med students and interns, residents, or other people listening, can you sort of describe exactly what a carb is and maybe some some general rules of thumb of what that might look like? Ah, carbs, bread, rice, corn. So those are like, you know, our big sources of of carbohydrates. But then there will be carbohydrates in other foods that we do not think of. For example, like beans have a lot of of carbohydrates in them. If you're a vegetarian, um, in general, you're eating a good bit of carbohydrates um, in, in, in your diet because beans and uh, and rice and all those kinds of things uh, would would have it in them when someone's trying to count a carb like what what equals one carb or two carbs so so you're bringing up kind of the question a carb so so traditionally like this comes from the nutritional background and it can be very confusing at times because in to some people a one carb is a 15 grams of carbohydrates so that is uh, the traditional way of teaching nutrition when we were doing with servings and the serving would have one carb two carbs with a one carb is a 15 grams of carbohydrates. Now, when we move to counting carbohydrates, we're saying it's really the counting is how many grams of carbohydrates is not by one carb, two carbs, three carbs. And so that's where sometimes error and confusion happens. When I say one carb, is it one gram am I meaning or am I meaning 15 grams? When we go to bread, for example, like a toast of bread, that's the size of our palm, 
is a 15 grams of carbohydrates. If we're looking at a carton of milk, a small carton of milk, that's about 20 grams of carbohydrates in it. A half a banana is a 15 grams of carbohydrates. Uh, a small apple is a 15 grams of carbohydrates. And when we, so, so those are like for people who are using measures of things that, that are not provided to them directly. Now, if you go and eat at a restaurant, uh, especially a fast food restaurant, then they have the exact amount of carbohydrates in every meal that they are eating, although they may not uh, announce it, you know, on their menu and, and, and things like that. And if you buy anything in the store uh, that is pre-prepared food, then you will have the grams of carbohydrates in it. I uh, would have ruined my low-carb diet restrictions through breakfast with those uh, calculations. Yeah, I like how, what, <laughs> what do you eat? So my, my next question is, how often are you recommending them checking their sugars? And like, are there other types of goals in terms of these sugars or even A1C that we're looking for as we move forward with treating this patient? Uh, great question. So we do ask them to check blood sugars before each meal and before bedtime, and sometimes to check it at 2 a.m. in the morning, or at least in the beginning at 2 a.m. in the morning in order to make sure that we're not dealing with uh, low blood sugars uh, in, in the middle of the night. Every now and then, we may ask them to check blood sugars two hours after the meals, more in order to see if their bolus that they are giving is appropriate or not. So, so that's kind of the, the traditional teaching that we that we say. And they take insulin before each meal and probably also before each snack that they eat. We do tell them about what we call a range of blood sugars, and the range of blood sugar. The aim for this range is for is to help empower them to know if their control of the diabetes is ideal or not yet ideal. So what we say, uh, we want the range of blood sugars to be between 80 and sometimes 180, sometimes 150, sometimes 120, depending on the age of the child and, and how, how recently they were diagnosed. And, and then what we say, this is the range that we're aiming for. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to give you a hard time if you are falling outside that range. This is a range for us to look at the pattern of blood sugars, and we want to have 50% of the readings in that range. If the 50% of the readings are not in that range, then that means it's time for us to make an adjustment to something in order to bring it down to that 50%. And so generally speaking, when you're doing your tweaking of your insulins, you're, uh, I think you said a little bit, so you're, you know, you either preprandial or two hours postprandial, you know, you're checking your sugars and maybe titrating the, your bolus dosing based on that. And they're, and I assume then you're, you're fasting in the morning. That's what you're using to titrate your basal. Is that correct? The, you do use the fasting blood sugar to titrate the basal, but sometimes not necessarily if you want to be, uh, specific about it, we say skip a meal and maybe breakfast, and then keep on checking the blood sugars every two hours while you're skipping it. And if your blood sugar rises 30 milligrams per deciliter or drops 30 milligrams per deciliter every two hours, then your basal insulin needs adjustment. When we start insulin treatment on a patient, I remember there's something called the, the honeymooner syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when we when we come with, with type 1 diabetes, that means that we lost 80% of our islet cells that produce insulin in our system. Uh, there's 20% that may be still present, uh, reserve of some sort of insulin. And after you start treatment, that 20% may kick in and will start producing insulin a good bit of insulin 
that may uh, make it easier to control the diabetes, and that's why we call it honeymoon. It's like like a newly married couple and having a very good time. It's not because they eat honey all the time, <laughs> and 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 they have relatively easier to control uh, blood sugars. Their or their needs of insulin are much lower than expected per per weight that they have. And this honeymoon can last uh, up to six months, but even up to two years or three years. So we've had some some patients. Uh, that we're treating that continue to have some level of insulin production uh, a good bit of time after diagnosis. It, it disappears. One thing I worry about the honeymoon is that when it goes away, there's panic in the family and in the child that the child is starting to do something wrong and and, they, and blame game going on. So I, I keep on reminding them, you're dealing with easier to control diabetes and that may go away, and don't panic if that happens or when that happens. Got it. And for these patients who are on uh, chronic insulin for their lives, how do you counsel about hypoglycemia, the risk of hypoglycemia, what to look out for, and, and how bad is that? Yeah. So, so the first thing that we teach them is that a blood sugar below 80 or below 70, they should consider it low. Although Physiologically speaking, many people who don't have diabetes walk around with with numbers below 70 and below 80. And the reason we say that is in order to have a buffer um, of protection against the the scary low blood sugars, which are like the 50s and the 40s and and below that. So, So what we tell them is that you really want to try to avoid numbers below 70 or 80, but certainly you should not have blood sugars below 50 more than two times a week or three times. If you do have blood sugars below 50 that often, then we need to do something in order to avoid it, make adjustments of of some sort. What we want to try to avoid is getting into what we call neuroglycopenia, which is uh, translated as low glucose in the brain. And and that's when you have seizures, uh, problems with uh, level of consciousness, talking out of your mind, very poor judgment. So, So that's kind of our aim there. That has been helped lately by using the continuous glucose monitors, and and most insurance companies, including Medicaid, will pay for continuous glucose monitors for people who have significant low blood sugars that they may or may not feel. There are symptoms for low blood sugars like sweating, but that doesn't happen in everybody, and so so we teach about them, but we also tell them to be vigilant all the time. Are there other symptoms that, um, or mild symptoms that they should be looking out for that you tell them, if you're seeing this, make sure you try checking your blood sugars at that time? Like palpitations, cold sweats uh, are the main things. Tremors would be one of them. The, the main cause of those symptoms is our sympathetic nervous system kicking in, and that's what, what's doing it. So that's the, the low blood sugar stimulating our sympathetic nervous system that's doing this. And that's when you're having a rapid drop in your blood sugar. So once they're low, how, how do you counsel them to treat it? Uh, we use the, the rule of 15, 15, 15, which is uh, meaning you give 15 grams of carbohydrates uh, and then you wait 15 minutes, check the blood sugars. And if it's still low, you give another 15 grams of carbohydrates and, and keep on doing it that way. Sometimes they will get sick of that because like it takes forever. And many people, when they are low, they just want to eat the whole world before, which leads to another problem of a rebound high. Hmm. Now, do you ever, I, I know parents maybe carry like, 
you know, cake frost, like a tube of cake frosting or uh, glucose gel, or I mean, what one should people routinely have those? When should they have like a glucagon pen? Uh, when, when would you see those types of treatments? Yeah. So the glucose gel and the the cake icing would be something that oftentimes people use for someone who's showing decreased level of consciousness and would not be very good at swallowing. And therefore you're aiming for the glucose to be absorbed in, in the oral mucosa. You can use glucagon anytime in situations like that. Uh, people try to avoid using it unless you have a seizure or something like that. But there is something that we use often in, in someone who's unable to eat or drink but not having seizure, and that's what we call mini-dosing of glucagon. Um, and so you reconstitute it, and then you give a unit per year of age for the patient subcutaneously, and that raises their blood sugar enough to to, to proceed further. Now, glucagon is now available in an inhaled form, so that's, that can be used as well. Huh. I didn't know that. I am not diabetic, but also carry around emergency cake frosting just in case. Well, uh, hmm. <laughs> I will not judge that. <laughs> I appreciate it. So let's say our patient gets under control, understands their insulin regimen, understands how to monitor for hypoglycemia and is relatively well uh, controlled. But now that he's got the hang of it, we want to talk about some of these other contingencies. So what about when he's at soccer practice or doing really intensive athletics? What about when he's sick? Or what about if he's a young adult, if he's taking an alcohol? How can these things affect the glucose and how he should be dosing insulin? Yeah, so sports. Sports is interesting because it, it, it can do two things to us. One of them, it may increase our sympathetic tone, uh, and that actually can raise our blood sugar a little bit. But then we're also increasing our aerobic activity, and that will lead to our uh, muscles to consume more glucose. But our muscles will not consume more glucose if there is not enough insulin. So the first thing about sports that we advise is if your blood sugar is very high, then sports is bad. And you don't want to go to sports if your blood sugar is above 350 because you worry about there is not enough insulin in your system and that sympathetic nervous system may actually raise your blood sugar farther so, so a blood sugar above 350 or present ketones, no sports. Blood sugar below that, you may, you may consider it. So what we tell them is that with sports, sometimes you may have high blood sugars and some people, and sometimes you will have low blood sugars. The more common is the lower blood sugars, but higher blood sugars can happen. What we also see in sports is a, a delayed effect where a few hours later, you may start having lower blood sugars. So, so if you had a very active day, we say during the night that night, you really want to check your blood sugars a little more often because you may run into lower blood sugars at that time. I met one time with a, an elite athlete who said that he actually gives himself extra insulin the day of a tournament, even without eating, because all that stress of the tournament raises his blood sugars even without eating, but then he will have to check his blood sugars very often. Hmm. And how about someone who just had get sick and has a bad cold and maybe is eating a little less? Yeah. So so blood sugars can rise and, and, and go down or go up, you know, with sickness because of the stress hormones that can raise it or because you're not eating. The main thing about it is that we say you really want to make sure that you're having basal insulin on board. 
You don't want not to give insulin. You always have to have insulin in your system. And then you have to check more often and perhaps give yourself more often insulin or avoid some of the boluses if your blood sugar is tending to be more towards the low end. So to piggyback on that, you know, so obviously when we take care of uh, kids who are in who are admitted to the hospital, what is your general rule of thumb in treating their insulin, say, if they're going to have a procedure or if they're not eating? How do you approach that scenario? Yeah. For procedures, what we advise is that you actually, the NPO after midnight does not apply to clear liquids. So we we allow them to continue drinking clear liquids to treat lows or highs up to two hours before the procedure. So so yes, you don't want to eat solid food, you, you don't want to drink milk, but you can use clear liquids if you're dealing with a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar. And the second thing that we say is that uh, we advise the surgeons to put them as the first people on that list so they will have the surgery right away. And then when they come to the uh, unit where they were going to have the procedure, put an IV and make sure that they're checked, their blood sugars are checked every minute in order to make sure uh, that they are in good shape. Now, do you cut their, do you ever cut their basal insulins during this time? Sometimes or? we do, sometimes we don't. We do it if we're thinking that they are overdosed and their basal insulin. But if we feel that their basal insulin is ideal, then we just stay on, on the same one. If we are to decrease the dose, then we decrease it by 10 to 20%. And so it sounds like a general theme, whether sports, sickness, or other things that can affect glucose is just monitoring more closely. Correct. Is that fair to say? And, and, and because of that, a very important goal for me as a physician that treats people with diabetes is give them as much autonomy as possible and give them general guidelines. But I want them to be the ones who are controlling and really teaching me about how they are dealing with those things. What are we worried about in type 1 diabetes? that go untreated. If someone has high blood sugars consistently, what are the complications and side effects of type 1 diabetes? Yeah, so we have vision problems, neurological problems, cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, and, and may, may end up leading to, to renal failure. And, it, and this depends on the hemoglobin A1c, how high it is, and how persistent it is. So, and, and this is a very important question because like sometimes will call me in a panic because I have 300 blood sugar. The damage is happening. My kids, my kidneys are gone and all that stuff. No, 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 calm down. You know, that's not the case. Uh, this is more of something persistent for years and years and years to come. So I advise them about that. They want to try to have as low a hemoglobin A1C as possible, but without running into too many low blood sugars. But not to panic if they had one high hemoglobin A1C and aim for the long-term effect because it's something that's more cumulative. But certainly they need to be aware. Uh, that's why they have to have an eye exam once a year. We have to check their cholesterol and lipid profile every year. We check their kidney function and their spillage of protein in the urine also once a year. So, so we are... As part of management of diabetes, we are monitoring for those kinds of things on a regular basis. Where I am weak at is catching neurological manifestations or peripheral neuropathy. Uh, I worry that I may be missing some milder forms of it at times. Mm. And this is all because the glucose itself in high 
amounts is toxic to cells? Is that the pathophysiology of what's causing the disease? So the thought is, is yes, like the, the persistent presence of glucose in the cells at higher amount than usual is going to glycosylate certain proteins in the cells. And that glycosylation of the, of the proteins in the cells is causing to damage, leading to some damage. Got it. Got it. So you were saying that, you know, you, you want them to have as low hemoglobin A1C as possible without low sugars. Are there goals for the A1C right now that you generally go for? Yeah. So for the very young, you know, for the toddlers and stuff like that, we, we tolerate an A1C up to 8.5%. Uh, but as they get older, then we start getting closer to the, the ADA guidelines, which is aiming for an A1C of about 6.5%. Now, as I do that, I have to keep in mind that in type 1 diabetes patients, that may be a goal that's very, very difficult to achieve. And so as I tell them what is the ideal hemoglobin A1C to have, I also have to keep in mind not to make them panic if they have a 7.5% A1C uh, because it may be very difficult or it may be associated with too many low blood sugars to get an A1C to 6.5%. Our newer tools of managing diabetes are helping us get closer to that to that goal, and so it's, maybe it's not a problem in a, in the coming few years, but it was a problem through my career. Well, you mentioned the continuous glucose monitor, and you mentioned the insulin pump. How close are we to connecting those to make a robot pancreas? Will we have cured type one diabetes by the time this episode comes to air? We will not cure diabetes by the time it comes there. I am so sorry about that. But the, the closed loop system is already present. The closed loop system is having a continuous glucose monitor. And for those who are not aware, continuous glucose monitor is a device that's under in the subcutaneous tissue that checks the blood sugar maybe every five minutes or so. And, and this continuous glucose monitor is now connecting to insulin pump and, and giving the orders to the insulin pump to give more insulin or less insulin, depending on the trend of the blood sugar. If it's rising, then, then the pump will give more blood sugar, more insulin. And if it's dropping, then the pump will uh, give less insulin. So that's already uh, present. It's not yet ideal. I mean, there is more adjustments that we need to make um, in order to have more reliable systems. And, and, and the patient still has to bolus for their food. If they don't bolus for their food, there may be uh, a problem, like a rapid spike in, in the blood sugar, and then the pump will panic and say, well, there's something wrong, and you know you have to deal with it. And you know, So that's, that's an area where we are. But in, over the coming few years, I think, that, be, that will become the standard of care, a, a closed-loop system of some sort. And, and if a pump company is not doing it, then they're going to be out of business maybe over the coming five years or so. The search for the cure is ongoing. It's a hard one. You know, we're, we're trying to, it, like, wh where is it? Like, you know, can, can the islet cell regenerate? You know, so, so, so there are some researchers um, at University of Alabama in Birmingham that believe maybe the islet cells can regenerate if we give them a break from, like, from the immune system, that the immune system is not attacking them that much. And then the potential for can you use maybe a stem cell and put it in the islet cell and therefore it will regenerate. The biggest challenge that we have is how to manipulate our immune system in a safe way in order to counteract the autoimmunity that is really the factor in type 1 diabetes.
Well, I guess with that glimpse in the future, Justin, I think maybe we should wrap up. I think it's a great idea. Hussein, if you could ask, what, what are the big main take-home points you want our listeners to walk away from this episode with? Is that the management of diabetes over my very long career, I'm not going to show you how old I am, <laughs> is that every five years, there have been a revolutionary change in the management of diabetes. Every change had been more positive than the other and more positive than the other. So keep yourself tuned to what's going on. And the other one, and that's very, very important. We can look for the cure, but the most important thing is to help people live a happy, healthy life. And part of a health, happy, healthy life is to be involved in a community of people that have diabetes or have interest in managing diabetes that can provide patients with a sort of support system and an empowerment system in dealing with this condition because it's challenging and it's demanding and it can be a pain. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It sounds like we have a lot more diabetes and probably we, we need to have a, another episode. Don't you think, Justin? Absolutely. And maybe a DKA episode. I mean, there's a lot, a lot more we can talk about. Shut up. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Anything that you would like to plug or anything that you would like our listeners to know about that they can follow up with? Uh, I... I like diabetes camps. If someone is living in an area where there are diabetes camps, I think those are really great. They are, those are great for patients and for their families, but they are actually great for any healthcare professional, whether physician or nurse, who wants to learn more about diabetes than maybe volunteer some of your times at a diabetes camp, because that's actually how I learned more about diabetes than any other place. Because I, I worked with them as human beings, not as patients. That's amazing. I love that. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. All right. Bye. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list known as Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge and weight-based dosings of fun. To do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our assistant producer of this episode, Shannon Snellgrove. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Shannon Snellgrove. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.